Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. There is one thing that makes me so tired that I cannot go on, and that is conflict. Do you hear me on that? That is conflict. There is like nothing, nothing so exhausting as relational tension and argument is there. There's nothing that eats up my headspace, my time, my energy, like a fight, like a war. I wonder if you recognise that feeling um, where your breathing becomes shallow, your mouth goes a bit dry, there are awkward sideways glances and uncomfortable silences. Maybe it's just come because you suddenly exploded long harboured feelings on the person in front of you and it's come out in this verbal barrage that you didn't even meant to come out as strongly as it came out. Or maybe it's someone exploding at you and you hadn't seen it coming and you're kind of stunned and you don't know what to say or you do know what to say and that's the problem. (laughs) Maybe you've entered conflict with polite but ice cold conversation. This kind of battle is fought as you launch words where people read between the lines. Or maybe the war is in your head. They don't even know how much you hate them. But you are screaming at them in your mind as you smile and as you nod and as you be the good Christian person that you think you should be. What's your version of warfare? What's your version? Whatever the battle tactics, the fruit's generally the same. Your head is left in a spin. Maybe your body will flood itself with like this toxic concoction of emotions, anger, rage even. There's then guilt, anxiety, confusion, hopelessness, shock, panic, loss, hurt and worst of all, bitterness. Try as you might, you can't stop thinking about it. What they said to you, that person, what they did to you. And you play it over and over in your mind about what you'd say to them if you got to enter the ring again and fight it out. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. And its exhaustion is not just limited to those directly involved. Anyone who's had any form of family disagreement, siblings who don't talk to each other, parents who divorce, close friends who part way, Part ways, it's you know hard when you are a part of it, but it's still really hard to watch on, to be caught in the middle. Two people, you love them both, and they are fighting. If you know how hard that is, then you've tasted just a small taste of what God must feel. Two people that he loves, and they're fighting. They're squabbling to see them rip shreds off the flesh he died to save. It must be devastating, heartbreaking for him. 
You know, as I was preparing, I came across a poem. I've heard it before, but it makes me laugh every time. Here it is. To live above with saints we love. Oh, that's going to be glory. To live below with saints we know. That's another story. Do you feel that? The tension of that? Well, right here in James 4, God addresses it head on. This passage in James is not a passage where you go, "Mm, I wonder what James means. (laughs) It is blunt, straight to the point and ouch, it hurts. It is a beautifully crafted punch in the guts. And if you can see through the walls of self-defence that might rise up within you tonight, if you can see beyond that, what you have here is a way out of the chaos of fruitless conflict and strained relationship. Right here is wisdom about warfare. The warfare going inside your own heart, the warfare that goes on between us and God, and ultimately the warfare that's more external that goes on between all of us. I have to be honest with you, the last two days as I've come to pray for you, I have felt very emotional um, because... (laughs) And the phrase I I got often when I was praying was, um, you're walking over graveyards. Like, I don't know what your context is, but I just get a sense when I have been praying for you um, that you've battled. You've seen battles and you've been hurt. So I just want to pray over you now before we go any further and before we really dig in. lover of our hearts. I'm so thankful you're here with us, Jesus. And I'm so thankful that you are the shepherd who walks us through the valley of the shadow. Spirit, come. I pray a blessing over this group, over every heart. And I pray protection over every heart. Father, I ask that you will speak a word of mercy over them. You delight in showing mercy and mercy triumphs over judgment. And so I pray, Father, that there would be no condemnation in this house tonight, that no one would come away feeling afflicted or condemned, Jesus, that you would bind up the brokenhearted, that you would comfort the wounds that you would pour forgiveness and hope over those words we've spoken that we wish we hadn't. And that you would give us hope, Jesus, hope in those spaces where we haven't felt hope. God, be with each one, sit next to each one tonight. You know their battles. So I thank you, Father, that you are with them. Give us grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're just going to sit a while in this place and we're really going to ask God about why our relationships are so fraught with offence and conflict and the wisdom that he's asked us to take from him to move on and through it. Okay, so let's, let's go back here. Verse, verse 1. Open up your Bibles if you've got one or your phones. Um, every verse of James is pretty rich. So good to read along with me. 
What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. So as I'm reading these verses, I'm imagining, you know, you're walking in the door of your house and suddenly your brain is picking up, screaming, fighting. Have you ever done that where you've come home to your house and you suddenly go, ooh, all is not well here. It's happened to me as a mum, you know, I go out in the garden, lost in the serenity, the peace, the birds. And then I enter, I cross the threshold of coming inside and I'm like, oh no, (laughs) I can hear the screams. Oh no, someone's fighting. And the first question I ask is the question James asks. What's happening here? What's caused this? What's happened? Tell me what's happened. And the answer, well, what's alarming is how deep that rabbit hole goes. What James tells us is that the external conflict, the conflict that you see in here, is actually about a conflict. It starts about a conflict inside, one that you don't see in here. The fight with others starts with a battle within. A battle that started with Adam and Eve. When they saw the fruit, they wanted to be like God and so they took it. The name of that battle, where it's repeated a few times in just those first two verses, you can underline it if it helps you to remember. This is what the battle is. Ready? Desires, verse 1. You desire, verse 2. You covet, verse 2. You want, verse 2. So just to sum it up, desire, coveting, wanting. This is an epic tantrum. That's what that is. This person is not getting what they want. And so they're raging, even willing to kill. And look, it gets worse. They're willing to kill for something that is just going to give them pleasure and is really not for the benefit of anyone else. They have put their own pleasures, their own um, desires above relationship. A human being a Christian brother or sister made in God's image. And that's why in verse 3 it says, their hearts have the wrong motives. What they desire is bottom line selfish. You know, Adam and Eve, when they took the fruit, that fruit that promised them that they would have the knowledge of good and evil that would make them like God, when they were filled with desire for that, it was so sad because... They had forgotten that God had already promised that to them, right? He had made them in his image. So they were reaching for something they already had. They were like God, right? And he had literally provided them this abundant picture of his provision. So he knew, they knew, they should have known, that he was a very generous provider. So this is what gets to me, right? Why did they not ask God for it? If they really wanted the fruit, if they really wanted the knowledge of good and evil, why didn't they ask him to teach them about it? Did they have any reason to suspect that he wouldn't give them information that they needed? Like, for example, if a child came up to you and said, and no child does this, but if a child came up to you and said, Mum, I'm really interested about how alcohol tastes. Tell me, what does it taste like? 
right? I would do my best to teach them. But if they independently wanted to take that information like their own way, they would try it, right? So I just think, why did they not ask God for this information? Like, would he not? He may have just actually sat down and taught them about it. I say to my children often, you know, guys, I am normally on board with your creative schemes as long as you ask me first. Like, I can deal with my florist wire being used for bionic barbie arms as long as you ask me. Just ask me. Just ask me. But Adam and Eve didn't do that. They wanted to take it. They wanted to take it independently because they believed the lie that God might hold out on them. And isn't this the way with all of us? We fight for what we want because we've truly sold out to a lie that we are our own providers. We are like this epic tantruming child. We want it. We don't want to ask God for it. And when we do get it, we want to keep it for ourselves. See, James is not just talking to someone else here, some immature adult brat who never heard no. James addresses this letter to the church. He, what causes fights and quarrels among you, you Christian, good people, you Jesus followers, the inner warfare of desire. A desire for what we want but cannot have is alive and well in Jesus' body. And it actually destroys us. It destroys us. And look, I don't think it needs saying, but I wasn't asked to teach on this passage because I've got it together. Like I've got it sorted in my life because I see this on the daily in myself. It's in the little irritations of children asking questions when I was just hanging out for a long time. Or Stephen being indecisive about something that I've decided is a no-brainer. I come to my decisions quick, people. (laughs) Or it also, I find, comes up in me when I notice a mark on the couch that I've specifically said, do not eat on this couch. Or when the pencils I bought for school because, you know, you need pencils, become, you know, a trebuchet for a night game. And I just feel the frustration rise up and sadly boil over too much. And I kind of metaphorically, but sometimes quite literally, stamp my feet. I don't give the children time to make right of their mistake or Stephen time to think through the issue at his own pace because I'm so driven by my want and my sense that my want was not met. But that's the small stuff. Behind me are actually far deeper wounds. The wounds of my parents' ugly divorce, my sibling who broke contact with, sorry, it's quite real. My sibling who broke contact with me, my parent who didn't approve, the wound of a closest bridesmaid pulling away and another very old friend saying she'd rather not be friends anymore. And these are the aches I carry that I still think about daily that I wish I could fix but that remind me that James 4 is for me first. Because behind these battles, I see a complex tussle where they wanted something for me that I wasn't able to give, where I wanted boundaries, but I didn't want to say it, not really that explicitly. I just wanted them to pick it up by osmosis so I didn't feel bad. And surprise, surprise, resentment built 
And I haven't just tasted it in my personal relationships. It's in broader churches I've been a part of. And if I could summarise it, the heart of it in a phrase, it would sound something like, my needs are not being met or I'm not being listened to. There is a war raging in us and it springs up like a weed from a sense of emptiness an unfulfilledness, a need for something, someone, anything to fix the ache or to heal the hurt or to make it right or even just better. I think we'd settle for better. We all have this gnawing want for you fill in the blank. And when someone seems to get in the way of that thing, in us getting what we want or when someone gets that thing that we really wanted and we've been waiting for and we've earned, well, our ability to relate to that person is suddenly really compromised. And we can try to be nice to them, but in our hearts, we are battling. We are battling anger, jealousy, hurt, and that seems to be the offspring of desire. Desire is a dangerous thing, isn't it? You know, look at those dream boards. And when I look at this passage, I'm like, don't do that. (laughs) That's dangerous. Dreaming, is it? You know, I call desire dangerous. Look what James says about it. He goes stronger. He calls desire adultery. Okay, let's read from verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? So characteristically of James, he's using full-on language and smack-you-in-the-mouth metaphors. Don't forget adultery is when a husband or a wife cheat on each other. Having had a parent who committed adultery multiple times, I can tell you the impact is actually just devastation. Just devastation. So is James overstating this when he says that our desires, our reach for all we want is actually adultery? What James is doing here is he's actually picking up on a picture that God's used many times in the Bible to talk about his people. He calls us... His children, he sometimes calls us his bride. Have you heard him use that word before? His bride, his beloved. The book of Hosea really lays out this imagery. If you want to look into it, I recommend reading Hosea. It's a fascinating book. It tells the story of a God who pursued his beloved wife even after she kept running after other loves, other men. And that's just such an accurate picture of Israel. God bought her, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. He made a covenant with her like wedding vows. And then he loved, he loved her and he provided for her. For every want she could want, he provided it. But she kept chasing after other gods. Israel kept cheating on God. And then God kept chasing Israel. Which begs the question, why would anyone, anyone chase after a multiple adulterous wife? Like multiple times. Would it not be better, not wiser, 
to cut your losses and not prolong the pain. But I want to, I want to point out to you the contrast here. The contrast is the person in the first few verses of chapter 4 and then this, God's love, which is not self-interested, not in pursuit of its own fulfilment. God abandons his own desire for a faithful bride and still pursues her despite her unfaithfulness. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he delights to show you mercy. So don't you hear this passage and don't you think that God is condemning you? Oh no, he is running after you, beloved. He is pursuing you. He is desperate to find you and to be close to you again. He knows our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. So he calls us out of adultery. He offers us himself again. He stands at the door at the harlot and he says, I love you still. I would take you still. He calls her to end the war. The war where we say, yes, God, we accept your love. Yes, God, we want your forgiveness. We even mostly like the people that you've planted us in, the community of believers, mostly like them. The part where we say, yep, I want all of it, but please can you just leave a few things to me. The part where I love my job and I love just putting all my time into it. The part where I love spending my money the way I want to. The, the, the part that I love to dream about the future and, well, you're not really featuring, but, you know, you're still a part of it. The way I love to express myself, you know, I want to talk to my parents the way I want to talk to them. And I want to tell my friends what I think and how I feel because, hey, that's me and people just need to deal with it. And I also want to really express myself. I love expressing my sexuality the way I've been made. Because what does it even matter? So actually, I'm a Christian. I just have some other loves on the side. Here's the thing. Wherever we see conflict in relationship, wherever we see conflict in relationship, dig around a little, hunt around the memory of that conflict, and somewhere there you will find some idols. You will find some other loves, some things that have control over you when you don't get your own way. And what is even more challenging is that if God was in the place of those other loves, we'd actually be at peace. Our battle with God, not making him our first love, leads to a battle within ourselves with desiring things that we shouldn't want, which overflows to a battle on the outside, the fights and quarrels amongst us. But I have one nagging question as I ponder this. I'm not someone that swallows things. <laughs> I have to think about them. And here is my question. All right. Is conflict always bad? Are desires always bad? Should conflict be avoided at all costs? Is that what James is saying? Ready? So... Let's start with just understanding a little bit about wisdom literature, right? So 
Wisdom's definition, and I think this is a helpful definition to have. I got taught it as a young adult, and honestly, I think it's a really helpful definition to take in any books of the Bible that are predominantly wisdom under that category of wisdom literature. Wisdom's definition is truth applied in the right context. Truth applied in the right context. What do I mean by that? Okay, so if you've ever read the Proverbs, you might be perplexed to find that there are two verses sometimes that contradict each other in their wisdom. So, for example, Proverbs 26, 4 says, do we have a slide for that? Do not answer a fool according to his folly or you yourself will be just like them. Or in layman's terms, don't bother engaging with someone who won't listen to reason because it will just turn ugly and, and not be helpful to anyone. But then, literally just after it, in the very next verse, it says, answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. In other words, keep talking it out because actually the fool might think that they've actually got it right if you don't engage with them. Um, So what do we do with that? Well, we apply the truths according to the situation that we find ourselves in. The Holy Spirit, you know him? We actually need him. So he sometimes will prompt us to remain silent during senseless arguments. Sometimes you'll just know you are meant to shut your mouth on this one. And other times he wants you to speak up. Wisdom is knowing when to do what. So going back to James 4, we need to know when this applies and when it doesn't. Because the truth of the matter is that sometimes we are called to speak up, to speak out, even if we know full well that this will enter into conflict. We see Paul do this as he confronts a church about things going on that shouldn't be happening. I mean, that is conflict. Paul had conflict. Uh, We see Peter confront Ananias and Sapphira for lying. That was conflict. Uh, It actually ended in people dying. We saw Paul and Barnabas enter into conflict with Peter in Galatians. Right? So... Even Jesus, you know, he didn't say, oh, it's not really that bad. They're not, they didn't mean it. That's not how he saved us. That was not his method of saving us. Pretending he was okay with how you're acting. Do you remember him tossing over the tables? That was pretty conflicting-ish, you know, like it's pretty like, it was pretty conflict fueled. He stared sin in the face. He called it for what it was and then he entered. He entered into that cosmic conflict for us. And that is the way that he made peace for us, is entering the conflict. I think it strikes me that in the church, sometimes the wisdom of James 4 has been misapplied Sometimes Christians can be so conflict avoidant that they lie or they try to hide their feelings. Conflict avoidance has led to some terribly damaging sins being covered over in the church specifically. Conflict avoidance in these situations isn't growing healthy, like um, flourishing communities. It's actually allowing repugnant behaviour to fester It's dishonouring of God and his holiness. It's yuck. 
It's damaging. So how do we know the difference between a war springing from, you know, those adulterous battles in our hearts and a war worth fighting? A few thoughts here. Firstly, just have a look at the the heart of the person in those first few verses of chapter 4. They're humble. They're not proud. They're rageful and they're willing to hurt others to get what they want. They prioritise their own preferences, their own pleasure above relationship. And they're independently grabbing at what they want rather than praying, talking to people, waiting for God's timing. There's none of that seen in these verses, right? And before you say, oh, he or she sounds like a right twat, you know, I'm glad I'm not like them, don't be so easily deceived because our hearts are deceptive and our motives can look pretty good on the surface. So this is where surrender calls us. Humble yourselves before God and honestly ask him, God, what are the hidden harlots of my heart here? What are the hidden harlots of my heart? And I say they're hidden because Satan is the deceiver. And self-knowledge is actually his enemy. So if you don't know your heart, your motives, the things going on inside of you, That is fertile ground for him to work. Self-knowledge is actually his enemy. So if you're needing to enter conflict because of a deep sense that you need to speak up, need to be honest about your concerns, need to set healthy boundaries, defend what's right, start to work out who you are. Knowing yourself is a wisdom worth pursuing. This is the humble ground. This is the humble ground where God can show us stuff to help us. So get uncomfortable, ask God, talk to trusted people who actually know you, who see through any kind of mask that you might wear and ask if there are any idols at play before you enter conflict. And I know we don't always have that option of like assessing our hearts. Sorry, hold the phone. I just need to assess my heart before you carry on. You don't often have that option. Sometimes you have to do it reflectively and then go back and talk to that person as a follow-up after. Um, So I I fully acknowledge that that's that's a thing. But I've put together a few questions and I'm not going to go through them right now, but maybe take a photo of them with your phone um, to help with that process of working out what's going on in my heart, where are my priorities. Um, Do we have that list of questions? Yeah, Um, I can send that to you and you can put it in an email. Um, Essentially, like it's just working out, what am I gaining in this conflict? Am I interested in the other person's well-being? Um, Do my desires align with God's heart and his kingdom priorities? Have I talked to God and asked him for the thing I want? And would I be willing to get a no from him? This is a big one for me. Would I be willing to get a no from him? And then, if he was to give me a no, why do I think he would say no? If you actually unpack sometimes why God might say no to you in this situation, sometimes it's very revealing of what his bigger work with you might be here. Um, Am I manipulating or acting to change the situation independently of God? Which is like, I haven't prayed, I haven't asked for help. Um, And if I get my way in this conflict... 
Will my relationship with the person be healthier and more God-honouring? If I get my way in the conflict, would my relationship be more healthy and more God-honouring? So hopefully that's some practical help with assessing the why behind your conflict. But what is the wisdom for warfare when your heart's just, you know, it's all messed up, it's twisted up? You know, you might have some good motives, but some bad. Um, maybe more adulterous than you like to admit. You are consumed with an unhealthy desire, an unhealthy desire for, for the money, for the prestige, for the recognition, um, an unhealthy desire to be loved, to be liked, for attention, for more. What do you do then when you work out it's unhealthy? Here it is in the harshest simplicity that I know. Warfare ends, warfare ends with surrender. Have a read with me in verse 6. He gives us more grace. That is why the Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. So I don't know if you've noticed, but surrender isn't a pretty picture here. It isn't an easy route. In fact, it's the bloodiest and most intense battle you're ever going to fight. To run from Satan's tricks, to get down on your face, to submit to God's perspectives on your love, God's view on your control over your life, that can actually feel like death, like dying. It's never going to feel pretty. And it's not neat and tidy either. It's not done in a day. I mean, if I didn't know any better, I would have thought that James is giving you know, a sales pitch here for depression. Like, have a look at those negative emotions that come with surrender. Grieving, mourning, wailing, gloom. So surrender might actually feel like you're harming yourself, that it hurts like that it's painful, that, that this can't possibly be good. But cast your eye back over what is promised alongside the painful emotions. Verse 6, God shows favour to the humble. Verse 7, the devil will flee from you. Verse 8, God will come near to you. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will what? He will lift you up. There is a prize. There is a prize, beloved child of God, that is far greater than just peace in your human relationships. As we surrender to God, as we are washed clean in the forgiveness that He offers us again and again and again, as we humbly ask Him for a new heart, for an undivided heart, we will see Him. We will know Him. He will come near. And we will be lifted up. You see, dear one, he actually loves you. He actually cares 
about what you long for. He cares for your aching heart, that you hate your job, that you long for a spouse, that you've asked for healing and just feel crushed by your symptoms. He's interested in your details, in your preferences even, in your passionate personality or your quiet awkwardness. He cares. And if you could just peel your hands off the things that you want and can't have, if you could just surrender your mad pursuit of it, he wants to meet you there. He will meet you there. A few years ago, I'd come to this point in my life where I wasn't coping and that was the polite way of explaining it. I had a number of relationships, um, people I love dearly who were deeply hurting and I wanted to be there for them. I wanted to help them. I wanted to provide for them. And this all sounds really good. But listen to what I'm saying. I wanted, I wanted, I wanted. I even um, housed them at different points. Um, So when they rang, you know, I listened. No matter the time, no matter how long they needed to talk, no matter how much my husband stayed awake. Sorry, love. Um, When they lost their phone, I wanted to buy a new one for them. And do you know what was behind all this seemingly loving behaviour? I had believed a lie from long ago that I was like my abusive dad. I was frightened I wasn't a kind and loving person. That um, I might be in the category of what my family members and close loved ones talked about, those ones who didn't really care. I was terrified of being that person. And all this loving person, all, all this loving on them actually started to make me really sick really sick. And I use this example because I want you to understand that these desires of ours can be sneaky. They can dress in Christian clothes and get under the radar. I got sicker and sicker and my relationship started to crumble because I no longer could give them what they had become used to receiving from me. And I reached crisis point and only then did I surrender. Don't make that mistake. Surrender before crisis, but I, I was at crisis and I still wasn't even sure why I needed to surrender because after all, wasn't a desire to help people good and from God, right? How could that be idolatry? But God told me to surrender and that actually looked like me pulling back from formal ministry and asking my husband to make the decisions for me relating to how I related to other people. So he would choose how long I would spend with people and what I would and wouldn't do for them. That's how badly (laughs) I needed help, right? And I'm telling you now that that surrender was ugly, so ugly. I'm still in recovery. I felt my heart blown to pieces. My identity ripped away from me. I felt Deep shame, such confusion. I had been trying to follow Jesus and now he was saying, follow me again, but it didn't feel like Jesus. How could he ask me not to meet their needs? How could he ask me to do that? But he met me there. Jesus met me there. He didn't explain it to me all straight away. But he met me there because there is a wisdom. And if you take anything home tonight, take this. There is a wisdom that you gain from surrender. 
that you won't get until you cross over the threshold of surrender. There are things he tells us to do that actually don't make sense until you surrender. And at the surrender and sitting in the discomfort of the surrender, he suddenly illuminates it to you and you realise the power of it and you realise the problems and you realise the harlots and you go, God, you were good and you were wise and you were right and I was wrong. But I couldn't see that until I surrendered. So... If you are waiting for it to make sense, surrender. Surrender. Don't expect it to get it. Just let go of the other love, dear one. He'll meet you there. Father, you know our hearts. You are the only reader of hearts. How can you love us and yet you do? You love the harlot. You love the one who betrays you, who pretends to love you but doesn't really. Oh God, you are so merciful. You delight in showing mercy. Just remind everyone here, God, that you are the God of mercy. You are the God of new beginnings. You are the God of hope. And that even though it feels painful to surrender and and harmful even to surrender, God, there is hope where you are. So God, give us the gift of faith. Give us courage. Give us wisdom, Father. I just pray, Father, a blessing of good relationship over this community. Father, that you will be teaching them now the mistakes that I've only learned recently, God. And that they would trust you and that they would lean hard into you during times of conflict And that they would not be avoidant of conflict, Lord, but they would have great wisdom and discernment about knowing their heart in conflict. So God bless, bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.